DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this episode, we continue the conversation with Archbishop Lucas on why baptism matters. Sharing the Light of Faith, the National Catechetical Directory for Catholics of the United States, tells us catechesis for baptism is directed primarily to adults, adult candidates for baptism, and the parents and godparents of infants who are to be baptized. Baptismal catechesis involves the community of the faithful, who share their faith with those being catechized. Adult catechumens and the parents of children to be baptized alike need the community's prayers, witness, and support. Pre- and post-baptismal catechesis may take many forms, such as prayer, fasting, service, and instruction. Baptismal catechesis centers on the Father's love, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Son, the cleansing of original and personal sin, and the gift of the Spirit to the Church. It includes proclaiming God's Word so that those called may respond in faith. Preparation for baptism of infants is a teachable moment when the parish community can encourage parents to re-examine the meaning which faith has in their lives. In offering catechesis to parents and sponsors, the Church shows its love for and eagerness to support them as well as their children. Going to be many questions that are asked of the parents and the godparents, and one of those is one, because it's a part of the liturgy, make it lost, but it is a substantial question of the parents. Do you understand fully what you're asking? Sometimes we'll say, the parent will say yes, but it's also incumbent upon the parish, is it not, and, and the priest that's involved to have established a way for those to make sure that they have the opportunity to, to learn and to grow so they do understand. Uh, you're right, and we, we can't take that for granted. These days, especially when we have a number of wonderful parents who may not have been catechized or may not have had the opportunity to be formed in the faith themselves, our parishes have to be conscious of their responsibility, but also of providing a way in for those parents and, and for that family so that there's a path of discipleship. If they haven't been on it already, they can begin it. And there are mentors and disciples in the parish already, along with the pastor, the deacons, others who can you know assist them on that journey. 
that we don't just say, you know, sort of applaud on the day of baptism and say we're glad to have you, but then really don't help and help in some practical ways for, for people who would be open to taking the next step on their journey of faith if they could see what it was and someone could help light the way for them. I'm recalling Archbishop Lucas in the downtown area of Omaha, the earlier days of the church, communities were built around churches. You would have churches that were established by the Germanic community and the Irish community, Italian, so many, I don't want to leave one out, where there was always interaction. In today's world, the way we are with our cars and our, the suburbia and just the expanse of our growth, it's difficult for those priests and deacons and even the community to continue to try to have that type of communal neighborhood type of feel, which helps to accompany, as you said, families as they're growing in their faith and just growing in years. Yeah, I'm not sure that we should think about it in neighborhood terms anymore, although in our current immigrant communities, the experience of 100 years ago in those immigrant communities those days is also, we see a similar experience today. It has to do with language and with proximity to the church and a real a deeper desire perhaps for community and maybe seeing the necessity of it if when people might not know their way so safely in the larger community. So that, that still prevails there for kind of the obvious reasons. But in many cases, the neighborhood is you know, just, it doesn't exist. And so, and it, as you were saying, it's a challenge for the priests and deacons, but it, not just for them. I mean, it's just a challenge for everybody to hear that Jesus is calling us together as a community of believers. And however we hear that call and can respond to it, that there needs to be a place where we can gather, certainly, but also a structure, if we want to call it that, so that we can be brought in to that community and, and can, can flourish there. In the era that you're describing from some time ago, people, because of their own experience growing up and the, a difference in culture, they would, would show up, come looking for what the church might have to offer. That's often not the case anymore. So there has to be a more active invitation. And then not just a parish to join, but a community that will actively uh, invite and welcome and accompany those who are drawn to the church at the invitation of Jesus, really. So often in our parish communities, there are groups that form, may not have a pastor or a deacon overseeing the activities, but maybe it's a group of moms. It's a group of elders who are, are reaching out to the younger members to help walk with them. It, it's amazing the different types of things that will flower in a community when it's allowed to. We shouldn't be surprised. It's the, the grace of baptism that we see flowering in these instances. Men and women who take their baptismal vocation seriously, the fact that they've been called to be disciples of Jesus, and they recognize that they are to live out that call in a particular community, not only taking for themselves what they need, but also uh, living in communion and in service to others. And as you said, those things should be encouraged, and they don't depend on priests or deacons. We want them to be in harmony with the teaching and the life of the church, obviously, but my experience is that they almost always are. There are signs of vitality, and, and again, th th those groups can be a way in for people. You talked about a mom's group, for example. So it's easy for a few moms to invite somebody else that they've come to know or somebody that moves into the parish or maybe they, they saw the person at the baptism of their child during Mass to invite them to come and join them for fellowship, for study, for prayer, whatever it might be, maybe a, a combination of those things. So that there's a practical experience of being part of the parish, not simply being on the rolls, but it's a relational experience 
that's life-giving in the Lord's design. When the parish offers the education to the child, a lot of times in parishes, that's when you begin to see people, once again, when they bring their kids either to be a part of a Catholic school or the Catholic religious education programs that happen, many of those begin in, in preschool years. They are a vital point of encounter, are they not? They're a necessity. I think in canon law, the only thing that's really required for a pastor to have as a staff member is a DRE because they are helping you to raise the child in the faith is a primary concern for the parish. That's been the experience of parishes throughout the history of the church in different circumstances, obviously, different in particulars. But we want to do everything we can to help parents. They have a huge responsibility, sometimes not so many resources, but they have taken seriously, we hope, at the time of, the, of their child's baptism, their responsibility to bring the child up in the faith, not only in name, only to say we're members of a parish, but a living and active faith that grows and, and matures. So the parish wants to help with that. We, we don't want to take that responsibility away. Parents should never re- surrender that responsibility to somebody else, but we're delighted to enter into a partnership with them because God is asking something really big and important of Christian parents who have a child who's been baptized, and the church can help them provide the formation in the faith that is essential. Again, that the, the child can't just pick up off the ground, but that it has to be surrounded by both practice of the faith and instruction formation in the faith. It's a balance, you know, and, and sometimes the balance it gets out of balance, where we have parents who think that the parish is going to give their kids something, and they would simply drop them off or enroll them, maybe enroll them in a Catholic school and a great sacrifice, you know, provide that for them, but in a way that is not truly a partnership. That's enriching to both, both the parish and the family. Our challenge these days more and more, I, I think, is to offer formation to parents and to make sure that the parish and the parents have the same understanding of what the mission of either the Catholic school or the religious education program or the youth program, whatever it might be. Often those who are operating those programs and providing them have a very clear sense of wanting to share the faith and form disciples of Jesus, but that may not be such a mature concept in the mind or the experience of the parents. So they may be sort of living past one another. You know, they're, they're trying to do something at, at the school that's not being reinforced at home or experienced at home. So the kids, they catch right away the disconnect. It's not an integrated approach. And so anyway, we, I think our parishes, it's our responsibility, but we're delighted to offer these opportunities of support for Christian families. But more and more, we, we see the importance and necessity of providing support and formation explicitly to the parents so that they can take their role. And really, it strengthens them in, as parents in, in so many ways, that they can be the primary teachers of, of their children in the ways of faith. There's nothing quite as wonderful as watching parents who come forward to become catechists in the parish, whether it's to a group of kindergartners or to first, second grade, but also in those seventh and eighth grade years. On a Wednesday night, that's an army in this town and all across the country, actually, in diocese throughout, of just ordinary people who may not have what the type of education those who are formal educators in the schools, but yet they want to pass on the faith and they do it the best they can. That's an, that's an unsung a group of heroes, aren't they? It's great. We're grateful to God for them. And those of us in leadership, it's our responsibility to make sure that, that they're not just beating their heads against the wall, that really that they are involved in an active partnership 
uh, with parents and, and with the rest of the parish. Our religious education programs are beautiful and very well guided, I think, in most cases. But more and more, we tend to ask ourselves, is this work bearing good fruit? So we know that we've got good people and we know they're doing good work, but is it bearing good fruit? And it, it can't really bear the fruit that's intended to have w- without the active engagement of the parents. And the catechists can only do so much in that regard. There's other ways in the church that we have to offer both the challenge and the opportunity for parents to grow in their faith. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. There's another important moment that happens when the parents come forward and say they are seeking baptism for their child. And the celebrant, the priest, the deacon, greets them, and he says, I claim you for Christ. 
I claim you for Christ. That, again, I don't know if we appreciate the gravitas of that particular moment. Yeah, it's a great moment, great to be claimed for Christ. You know, there are a number of symbolic expressions and actions in the celebration of the sacraments, of course, and particularly in baptism. This rite for the baptism of an infant reflects, we might say, the uh, what happens at the baptism of, of an adult, and it's modified and, and adapted for, for these particular circumstances. But th- we can think of the unbaptized person as kind of being in the wilderness, you know, being in this place separated from God where there's no eternal future and where they perhaps would be spoken of as lost because of the effects of original sin, maybe their own sinfulness too. And so to be claimed for Christ, for someone who's being called by Christ and who's, if he's an adult or she's an adult responding, in the case of an infant, the parents are responding on on their part. To be claimed by Christ and, and branded with the sign of the cross, you might say, we say that respectfully, it becomes kind of a habitual sign of recognition for us, ourselves, our whole life long and for others. So after baptism, many times we'll sign ourselves with holy water. We're signed with ashes on Ash Wednesday. We're anointed in other sacraments in the form of the cross. So it's a recognition, a way of stating not only who we are, but whose we are, that we belong to Jesus and that he's laid down his life to claim us from slavery to sin. And that claim is, again, it's, it's stated, made explicit at the moment of baptism. You know, this brings up a, a kind of an interesting point, Archbishop Lucas, that we are signed, we are marked with the sign of the cross. It identifies us as Christians. When you go to lunch, the grace before the meal, we sign ourselves openly in public, ideally, and that says who we are. We're, of course, recording in the great state of Nebraska where Husker football, and the big sign is we wear red, and that means you're a part of the Husker nation. Or there are other things that we do that mark us. As Christians, that being not ashamed of marking ourselves in public, that can be a challenge. That announcing who we are to the world, that can be something that we are timid about. And it's important that we do wear that sign and mark ourselves, isn't it? The sign is important, but it's important that we become the sign ourselves. And I think more and more as as experience a more secular culture, that we be more explicit in our own living, choosing, speaking as someone who has been claimed by Jesus and who, who accepts that claim, accepts that identity about ourselves. But certainly, but we don't want to be bashful about who we are. We don't want to be pompous about it either. But I think, you know, people wear crosses and get tattoos of crosses and we sign ourselves with the cross. Those mean different things, I guess, to different people at different moments. We're proud of that sign, that cross that, that has been traced on us first at baptism and that then we trace on ourselves many times a reminder to us really who we are, but also of the responsibility we have to respond to Jesus in every situation. We want to make sure that we're people of integrity, but also, you know, we have the commission from Jesus to share the light of the gospel with others and so that, and to not have that light be under a bushel basket. So uh, our Identity as followers of, of Jesus, as beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, that should be visible. And that we don't do it in a pompous way, and we're not trying to put it and shove it in people's faces. But how will others come to know of Jesus? How will those who are struggling with the question like, the, you know, does God care about me? Has is, is God turned his back on me? How will they ever know the answer, the beautiful answer to that 
question if they don't encounter those who are somehow demonstrating the answer, living the answer, willing to talk about it if that opportunity presents itself, but at least some warm-blooded person who cares about them, who's willing to accompany them, to be with them. So we do it. There's all kinds of signs of, of that. There's the explicit sign of the cross, which we should never be embarrassed about, but also to know that, okay, if I'm claiming that as my identity, that, that has implications for my choices, my relationships, the way I spend my time and energy and resources. And, and people should be able to see, sort of be drawn to the factor. Maybe sometime want to ask me the question, you know, I see you living in a certain way. You seem joyful about it and at peace with it. What's going on? You know, where does that come from? That's always the hope. But maybe something as simple as someone sees you in a restaurant making the sign of the cross or they see you're wearing a cross around your neck or ashes on Ash Wednesday. That, too, can sometimes be an invitation for somebody to strike up a conversation or just have a maybe put confidence in you because they know what the way that you're trying to live. And this is, I think, a, the next point in the rite of baptism, I think is something that we might want to always be aware of, or at least ha- have a sense that this is always going to be present. In any sacrament celebrated by the church, you will always have the Word of God. You will always have a reflection and a, a thought on the scriptures. That is a an, for those who think that the Catholics don't know Scripture, I think it's because we're so steeped in it all the time sometimes that we're not even aware that we hear it every time we come together to celebrate. Right, and we still might not know it. So I, yeah. I think that's uh, always more that we can, can experience. When we celebrate the sacraments, we're celebrating the sacred liturgy of the church in, in those uh, particular circumstances according to particular rituals. It was the, the mind of the Second Vatican Council in the liturgical renewal that we highlight more clearly the place of Scripture in the sacred liturgy, always there, sometimes just in remnant form, but it it is much more clear now that we are people who are formed by the reading and the meditation on Scripture and that we experience the risen Christ in the proclamation of the Word of God, particularly when it's proclaimed in public. Obviously, we do that in our own private reading and meditation on the scriptures. But when the word of the Lord is proclaimed in public, then we're reminded that the word of the Lord is a person and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we're hearing, all that, that is proclaimed. And these days, it's important that we don't take it for granted and that we do see and accept the power that is given to us in both hearing and living the, the word of God. The, the lens that scripture provides for us to, with which we can view the world both the challenges that we're facing and the blessings that we're facing, as we try to discern the plan of God for us. And then particularly as we celebrate the sacraments, we, and we might ask ourselves, well, what does God think about us when he looks at us here in this situation or on other days? The, the scriptures reveal that the answer to those things and give us a, a, a way to understand what we're experiencing, to put our trust in God and in God's loving plan for us. Uh, that's uh, manifested most clearly in the coming and the presence, the death and resurrection of, of his son, Jesus. The scripture is not just a little window dressing, you know, for the ceremony of baptism or any other sacrament, but it's a real integral part of the rite that helps us understand what's happening then, but also what God is doing now as, as God has been acting in salvation history. He continues to act. That's a beautiful moment because... At the end of that reading, we say once again, we respond, the word of the Lord is proclaimed to us. I I remember back in the 90s when the lectionary was changed, and it was uh, at that time, this is the word, little w. 
and the gravitas that the church once again in, in by bringing forward that it should be proclaimed the word of the lord with a capital w that he is present there in the word jesus present so even in this moment of baptism the one we're coming to be united with he's present he's present and he's speaking to us you know again i think we take this all kind of ways all kind of good ways you know a lot of levels of, of what this means but jesus is talking to us in a language we can understand and whenever the, the word of god is proclaimed in the liturgy in one sense, we can say God's telling us something that he wants us to hear right now, today, in these particular circumstances, whether it's a baptism or whether it's a weekday mass. We sort of look around and say, well, what's, what does this mean now? That has an eternal meaning, but it also means something at the moment. So the, the, the word of the Lord is, there's, as I say, a number of levels. They're all of them true and, and good. And I think in not making it so specific, the, the church is inviting us to experience that in a number of different ways. When we experience the baptism of adults at the Easter Vigil in the church, there is a very poignant moment where prayers of intercession are offered and the invocation of the saints, their intercession. Sometimes in that Easter Vigil, it's so powerful, but it's even as powerful in those little moments too when the child is baptized. Often in a baptism of an infant, we have a... A shorter version of a litany of of the saints that that flows from the other intercessions, but to write at the at the Easter vigil and sometimes the celebration of other sacraments, we we witness this to the a longer litany of saints. We can't possibly name all of them, but we name significant ones in the history of the church, and then have the opportunity to add those who are significant in our local history or the patrons of those being being baptized. This reminds us, of course, that we are being incorporated now into this new family, into the communion of saints, into, into the body of Christ. We imagine, I think rightly, that the, the saints are interested in this new member. We think about a, a family who welcomes a child through adoption or when a, a member of the family has become engaged to be married and there's going to be a new brother-in-law or sister-in-law uh, in, in the family. Everybody kind of looks them over, you know, and is anxious to get to know the the new member, because they know that this means a change for everybody in a good way, that someone is being incorporated into the family who brings uh, unique gifts, and in a sense, the dynamic has changed a little bit. So th this is uh, what happens at the time of baptism. God claims this person, if it's an infant, a little boy, a little girl, or claims this, this uh, adult man or woman as his beloved son or daughter, and they are uh, that uh, person is being baptized is welcomed into the family, adopted, and qualifies now as a member of the family. Will be invited to the table. Uh, will share in the inheritance. Uh, so it's a beautiful moment of recognizing that that incorporation into the communion of saints. We think of the saints, you know, as this as procession. You might say extending throughout history. The Blessed Mother is leading. I think sometimes if that started out as a spiritual hymn, it's, it's become kind of a jazzy thing, of course, over time, but when the saints go marching in. But as we say in that song, we want to be in that number. And that's what this invocation of the saints reminds us at baptism, that now this person who's being baptized is in that number of this great procession of saints who are marching in, marching towards our Father's house. Some already have arrived and are sharing fully in the inheritance now. And they are interceding for us. That's what we're asking for at the time of the litany, for their intercession and, and counting on it, welcoming it. And as I say, because they understand now fully what it means 
have been incorporated into Christ, they want that for us and want that for the one who's being baptized. So we, I think, rightly count on their intercession. Really speaks of a relationship, doesn't it? They're not just gone, but they're very much present in our lives, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They are, and it's a rich part of our, our Catholic heritage into which the, the new person is being incorporated. There's so many facets of Catholic life, we might say. But the, the saints are human, fully human, of course, and, and so they know the temptations and struggles. And again, the Blessed Mother accepted that understand, sadly, what, what it's like to fall into temptation and to need to turn to God for, for forgiveness. Know what a powerful gift that forgiveness is and how it can be a greater source of growth. They want all that for us and desire really to accompany us. And they do accompany us in ways that we can't always see or understand. It's an important part of our tradition and of our reality that we do ask their intercession in specific moments or in general and count on their accompaniment, uh, even though it's unseen. There may be those who are members of a, a Protestant denomination who don't understand fully the Catholic experience of the saints and that they may perceive that we worship them. And that's far from that, isn't it? Yes, indeed. We don't. Uh, we worship God alone, but we honor the saints. And as I said, we count on their, their company and, and their encouragement. It helps, I think, to consider them as members of the family, or they consider us as now as members of the family once we're baptized. So we look up to them like older brothers and sisters, we might say, and rejoice that they have finished the race and that what was promised, announced, as we've said, by God at the, at the moment of their baptism, God's plan for them, that they live eternally, that they be saints, that that promise now is fulfilled. Because they experience what, what it means, that fulfillment, they desire it for us. Yeah, they ran the good race, and they achieved what we've all been called to, hadn't they, that, that call to holiness, that universal call to holiness. Sometimes when we think of the saints, we, of course, we think of those big ones, you know, St. Peter, St. Paul, and again, from which they're all contained in the litany. I was thinking of Pope St. John Paul, who ended up canonizing so many seemingly ordinary people can, to help inspire us. It's true. It's, it's always been true, but the fathers of the Second Vatican Council spoke about this more explicitly and really is one of the beautiful parts of our experience of the, the time after the council that, that is this emphasis on the universal call to holiness. It's another thing that we're reminded of at the, the time of baptism with the invocation of, of the saints. They came in all shapes and sizes. As you say, some are more famous, we might say, and some quieter. And then some, of course, that aren't canonized, that maybe nobody remembers, but they are very much alive in Christ and very much part of our relationship with Christ in the church. As we said at the beginning of this discussion, you know, God sort of announces at the time of baptism, my plan is for this person to be a saint. That's not a, an imposition. That's a, a liberation. It's the invitation and the opportunity now through sacramental grace to really grow into the women and men that we have been created to be, who will live as fully as we can, freely as we can in this world with the help of God's grace and mercy, and then also live finally forever. Those who have been in our lives, who have touched us in certain ways, that the church may never officially declare them saints, and yet maybe it was the grandfather we knew or a priest that would seems so holy that it, it's those persons too are people that we're encouraged to pray with when we unite our prayers to God. Mm -hmm. We want to be careful not to 
make the idea of sainthood or sanctity seem unreachable or you know out of the ordinary experience. Uh, for example, I don't uh, foresee that I would ever be canonized a saint. That doesn't seem to be um, something very likely. But I don't want to say, on the other hand, so I guess sainthood isn't for me. It's, it is for all of us. That's God's, God's design for us. And the saints, some of them had the opportunity to do something heroic for, for the Lord, the martyrs we think of, or fathers of the church. But most of us become saints by doing ordinary things every day, freely, uh, coming to understand God's will for us, freely accepting it and, and choosing to follow it. We stumble, sadly, but then we freely open ourselves to the gift of, of God's mercy and healing and often come through those experiences of stumbling and, and being healed stronger and, and with a, a greater dependence on, on God and a, and a stronger faith that in God's plan for our sanctity, for our salvation. We'll continue our conversation on the rite of baptism in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.